And welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I research something that's piqued my curiosity recently, and then I tell you all the coolest stuff that I find out. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Today, we're going to continue, it's not really a series, kind of a series on comparative mythology, just, you know, thinking of a mythological concept and seeing uh, what different cultures at different times have uh related to that in their mythology yeah um yeah it's a series sure yeah i mean there were previous iterations or it's just uh, spread out yeah it's a spread out series um because i wanted to know about mermaids that's I a good thing to know about didn't realize how common they were i guess it makes sense because it's just really like a water spirit in general right okay yeah um and they're pretty old older than i originally thought they would be in mythology hmm okay that's really all i have to say about that i think we should dive right in well then teach me something as a mermaid would do okay that's true (laughs) i will um okie dokie so the origins of mermaids um you know there's like the definitive origin and there's the you know gray areas so if we start with the gray areas here um, some scholars suggest mermaids go back to like extremely archaic mother goddess figures, uh, like Sumerian Ninhursag, the Babylonian Hamat, and like even Gaia, maybe. Hmm. Sure. Um, and there's thoughts that basically feminine goddesses were kind of banished to the sea when power transfer occurred between like that kind of more formless elemental female power to anthropomorphized male deities you know that kind of switch happened um and so the goddess tiamat especially had some mermaid resemblance so she in their mythology gives birth to the world but the world remains covered in waters and then the god marduk kills her okay and dry land is made from her body okay so she's this primeval nature sea goddess uh, and becomes the enemy of, like, the settled life and on-land civilization. Even though her body is now the land. Well, her dead body. You can see how there might be conflict. Sure. So, the earliest representation uh, that we know of of a human torso and a fishtail comes from Babylon. Uh, the Mesopotamian god of the sea. And he's known by different names. Ea, Enki, Oenus. I don't know if I'm saying this right. Sure. Um, was represented with the torso of a human and the tail of a fish. Okay. Um, this fish man is mentioned repeatedly in the Babylonian Epic of Creation, and he's actually part of the army of Tiamat. Um, archaeologists have found accounts in Mesopotamian mythology of Oenus from over 5,000 years ago. Okay, that's quite um, some time. One thing I should mention in the introduction, just like all my mythology episodes, is... Um, I'm so sorry that I'll say everything wrong. Yeah. When it's I'll mythology from all throughout time and all over the world, pronunciation is tough. I Google pronunciations like crazy and half the time I can't find one and half the time I don't trust it. So, you know. So 100% of the time, incorrect then. I Exactly. It's, I'm going to keep the streak going. Okay. All right. So back, back to mermaids. Um, the first mermaid to appear in written record 
is the Assyrian fertility goddess Atargatis, who dates back about three to 4,000 years ago. Sure. Um, in the first century BCE, she's written about by the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus, and he wrote that she possessed the face of a woman and otherwise the entire body of a fish. Okay, so more like Monty Python in the restaurant. <laughs> I guess we could say that, yeah. Okay. Um, so the Assyrian mythology has several versions of events, but most include Atargatis falling in love with a mortal shepherd and having a daughter with him, after which she throws herself into a lake. Hmm, always. So why does she try to drown herself? Good question. I also wondered. Yes. Um, one legend says it was from shame because it was an illicit union. Ooh. Though I can't find any more details on what was so illicit about it. Uh, perhaps it's the fact that the shepherd's described as being a youth, not a man. But that Ooh. doesn't seem that unusual for the time period, to be say, honest. Yeah. But maybe when it's an older woman and a youth, I don't know. Maybe then it's an issue. Um, another source says it was from grief at inadvertently killing the shepherd. Um, because, you know, he was immortal and he just didn't survive the divine lovemaking. So she didn't kill him, you know, on purpose or anything. Right. Um, in Diodorus's version of the legend, Atargatis grows to also resent the child they conceived. So she exposes her daughter to the desert. You know, that just means leaving the baby to yeah. die of the elements, which never actually, they never, 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 never actually die. Because if they have any royal blood them. or, you know, Well, if they're demigod. part of the story, they yeah. never die. Of course. I'm assuming they did this in real life and that was probably much darker. But, you know, probably. Um, in stories, they never actually die. And in this case, that's true as well because the daughter is raised by doves. And doves. in any case, this daughter grows up to become the legendary Syrian queen Semiramis. Okay. Yeah. So, anyways, Atragatis threw herself in a lake. That's where we are in the story. But, you know, she's just so beautiful that she can't die. Well, of course not. And she's too beautiful to be fully transformed into a fish. Hmm, that would be disappointing. Um, so she retains her feminine shape and beauty above the waist, or perhaps above the neck, who knows. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, fishtail. Uh, so she's actually closely associated with the Syrian custom of not eating fish. Oh, I didn't realize that was a custom. Atar well, probably ancient custom. Sure. I doubt it's still a thing. Okay. Um, archaeologists have found Atargatis' figure on ancient temples and statues and coins, all that stuff. Um, so shortly after Alexander the Great conquers Syria, around 333 BCE, mm -hmm. uh, Atragatis and other uh, Semitic deities start fusing with the Hellenic deities. Um, so Atragatis becomes known to the Greeks as Aphrodite Derketo. Okay. With similar stories. Which is why... And becomes incorporated into Greek mythology. Okay. I was going to say that might... Does that account for why Aphrodite's often seen on like a large clamshell and like you those mean the story types of, of her being birthed from the sea yeah from uranus's castrated man bits being chucked into the ocean i mean i didn't remember all the details but yeah yeah yes there are, there are links there okay yeah um so mariners usually thought of the mermaid as spirit of the water who would be angry if deprived of their victim because you know all of a sudden mermaids eventually get this very vengeful sure. uh spiteful angry side to them does that also like relate to uh myths around like the sirens and, and crashing boats on rocks and stuff or is that a completely different uh mythos no that's part of that i mean the whole thing it's it's very uh i mean some of it has to do with just general women are scary 
Well, yes. And women have always been represented as scary in myth. Of course. Yeah, and and that all that all comes to play. Yeah, they all evolved. Okay. Out of that, um, so just even seeing a mermaid could make you know sailors terrified. Um, sometimes they try to distract the mermaid by throwing coins into the water, like ooh, shiny, you know, sacrificial objects down a well or something. Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Sure. There's one African American tale. So this is a lot later. They recorded the early 20th century, um, where a captain threw a crew member overboard because. He said a mermaid demanded it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so the sailor who was sacrificed was last seen by the crew wrapped in the yellow hair of the mermaid and drawn down into the depths. And, you know, then they say he married the mermaid and lived as her husband for six years and then found his way back to land. Of course. But honestly, a lot of mermaid myths like this probably came about because, you know, the mariner goes down to the sea. Like, you're probably not going to find a body. Yeah. Um, and how could one know for sure if he was dead or not? Couldn't just guess that he right. was dead. So there are so many stories of sailors just living in a kingdom beneath the beneath the water, you know? Um, there's a tale called The Seven Mermaids, recorded on the Frisian Islands, where a sailor, you know, when he's disembarking his ship, he raises his hand to the sea and solemnly pledges his loyalty to it. And, you know, he said if the sea waters treat him well, he'll promise to be faithful to them and never take a home on land. You know, seven mermaids heard that promise. And they plunge under the sea and keep an eye on this guy, though. And he becomes rich and he's prosperous and, you know, marries a human woman, settles down. Of course. On the land. So on the night of his wedding, the seven mermaids rise from the deep, send huge waves that leap over the dikes, pull the man from the arms of his beloved and, you know, carry him beneath the sea. Yeah. So how dare he? Um, Vengeful, angry mermaids. Yeah. Um, So... Specific. Let's get into some specific mythology here. Sure. Um, in West, South, Central, just kind of all over Africa, um, there's a range of stories about mythical water spirits called Mamiwata, meaning water as mother or mother of waters. Okay. Um, these spirits, you know, they're, they're divinities. They, have, like I said, come from all over. So there's tons of different cultures involved here. There's no s- specific one thing you can describe them as like they're they're quite different um but kind of in general they're linked to fertility lust and wealth um some cultures think they're diabolical creatures who lure people to their deaths which is pretty common in yeah you'll find in the mermaid lore coming up okay um they're often depicted with long hair and a mirror to represent passage between water and land and the link between past and present uh, Mami Wata's gender is fluid. They can sometimes appear as a man or woman. And that is also common in at least older mermaid mythology. Okay. Um, this non-binary gender. And then the, what and the like female version of it kind of like emerges later on? As we grow to dislike women more? Probably. Okay. It's uh, So we used to dislike men and women. And then later we just disliked women. I don't I guess, know if that's entirely I don't, I don't know if that's exactly the way to put it, but I just think that the fear of women maybe grew a little bit. Yeah, it got stronger. Okay, yeah. Fine. Um, <laughs> so Mami Wata's spirit is a worship for benevolence in offering beauty, healing, and wisdom. And, you know, if you worship them, maybe they will ward off some natural disasters. Okay. Um, following colonialism and the rise of the slave trade in the 1600s, the stories of Mami Wata spread across the globe 
Um, and so they are maybe kind of the source of some of the myths that appear in the Caribbean and other places like that. Okay. Um, the Miengu, which is the plural of Jengu, which is singular, uh, of Cameroon is another mermaid-like creature. They're said to be beautiful, uh, have long woolly hair and gap-toothed smiles. Oh. They live in both rivers and the sea, and they bring good fortune to anyone that worships them. Sure. Uh, Zimbabwe believes strongly in mermaids. They call them Mjuzu, and they're blamed for bad weather, water disasters, and the disappearance of men. They live in rivers and lakes, and if a person goes missing in those areas... Clearly, they were taken by the Njuzu never to return again. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the Maori uh, have a have a legend about a mermaid. I'm not surprised by that, yeah. Named Pania. Pania was a beautiful sea maiden. Um, and Karatoki was a very handsome son of a Maori chief. Okay. So, they fall in love. I was going to say that probably is the direction we're going here. We're secretly married. Hmm. Um, Pania explains to Karatoki that she's a creature of the ocean, and so when the sirens of the sea call her in the morning, she can't survive if she doesn't go back to the sea with them. So she promises to return every evening. Okay. And she has to leave every morning. Is this the tide? Oh, good question. Maybe. Hmm. Possibly. The point of this is that Karatoki is bragging to his friends about how beautiful his wife is, but they don't believe him. Of course not. Because they've never seen her because she leaves every morning. Right. Yeah. So he gets frustrated and consults a wise elder in the village who tells Karatoki that being a sea creature, Penya would not be allowed to return to the sea if she swallows cooked food. Hmm. So that food's okay, though. uh, Well, probably. What else is she going to eat? I I guess so. Sure. So that night as Penya sleeps, Karatoki takes a bite of cooked food, puts it in her mouth, but... An owl calls out and warns Pania before it's too late. And she wakes up and she's horrified and rushes to the ocean. And her people come to the surface and help her escape. And Karatoki never sees her again. Well, yeah. So the sea off Napier, this is where Pania was from. I don't know where that is in New Zealand. But if you're from there, you probably know. Um, Is now and forevermore protected by More More, the son of Pania and Karatoki, who often disguises himself as a shark or a stingray or an octopus. Okay, cool. In case you've ever seen one of those, maybe it's this deity. Mm-hmm. Now to ancient Greece and Rome, where there is a lot of material here uh, to draw yeah, from. Yeah, sure. Um, so in the Voyage of the Argo, written, by the way, by Apollo- Apollonius of Rhodes in the 3rd century BCE, which was cool because I've always heard about <laughs> that story and never really known. Yeah. The frame of reference there. Um, we're going to get our first glimpse of mermaids kind of as we know them today. Uh, these are the naiads or the water spirits. Okay. Um, so when the Argo's crew temporarily disembarks at one point, Hylas, who is a, a young boy adopted by Heracles, sets off in search of water. And he finds a spring and a naiad appears, kissing Hylas and pulling him into the spring, abducting him. And abduction in mythology tends to mean um, forced you know, sexual intercourse or sure. or something like that. So basically, you know, evil yeah. woman taking boy, you know. Yeah. And then there were the Nereids. The Nereids are sea nymphs and they're portray- portrayed uh, with fish tails, sometimes, sometimes with legs. 
There were 50 Nereids, and they're all daughters of Nereus and Doris. So Nereus is one of the Titans. Um, right. He was the oldest son of Pontus, who was the sea, and Gaia, who was the earth. So okay. that makes sense, you know, half yeah. sea, half earth. It totally makes sense. Um, he was considered, you know, the old man of the sea. He was a human with a long fish-like tail. Mm. His wife, Doris, was the daughter of Oceanus and Tethys. And both of those were children of Uranus, the sky, and Gaia. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. Sure. Yeah. Um, when the Titans were overthrown by Zeus and his siblings, Nereus was replaced as the ruler of the sea by... Poseidon. Poseidon. Correct. So the Nereids inhabit the Aegean Sea with their parents. Um, one prominent Nereid you've probably heard of was Thetis, mother of Achilles. Yes. Mm-hmm. Another prominent Nereid was Amphitrite, who marries Poseidon and gives birth to Triton. Yeah. A merman. Uh, so Triton essentially then inherits the kingdom of the sea from Poseidon. Okay. And yes, that is definitely where Disney got the name for yeah. Ariel's father. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Tritons are the descendants of Triton. Those are all mermen and mermaids. Correct. Yeah. That was one I did know. <laughs> we also have sirens. We do. And you might be confused if you're listening right now. It's not the police. Uh, oh. I don't think that's why people are confused. Oh, okay. Good. They're probably confused because the mythology of sirens is confusing. Sure. And you may have read accounts of them, you know, being more like birds and not like mermaids. Uh, yeah. Or yeah. like almost looking like harpies or something like that. Right. I've seen that mythology but as well. are their own. Anyways. Yeah. Sirens in Greek mythology were originally women with the lower body and wings of a bird who lured sailors to their death by singing with, you know, indescribably beautiful voices. Right. Like in the Odyssey, Homer's epic poem, and Odysseus has to tie himself to the mast so that when he hears the song of the sirens, he doesn't steer his ship right into the yeah. rocks or whatever it was, right? Um, so that story is obviously where our turn, term uh, siren song yeah. originates. Um, and at some point, though, the sirens lost their feathers in a singing contest with the muses, who were goddesses of literature, science, and the arts. Right. And, you know, they were very upset about this, right? So they fling themselves into the ocean, as women do when they're very upset. They just throw themselves into bodies of water. You'll hear this again and again. We, we've seen this trend already. Upset it's obviously women true. women throw themselves into water. Yeah. If you're really upset out there, women, Have just stay away from water. Oh. N- no. I think stay away from water. <laughs> okay. Don't drown yourself in the tub. No, not drown yourself. I'm just saying, if you what need you a body of water. What do you yourself in water is? Well, I'm just saying, if you need to throw yourself in water... A bathtub, you know, is most likely to survive. Dangerous? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Unless you hit your head. Bathrooms mm. are the most dangerous room in the house. Oh, water. You're just so dangerous to women. I was going to say the actual tub. Hitting your head on things is the most dangerous thing in the bathroom. Okay. Anyways. So either the sirens then perish, which doesn't make any sense. You mm. know, that's one version. Yeah. Or they transform into mermaids. Okay. Depending on your legend. Yeah. So the Romans adopt the sirens into Roman mythology as women with a fishtail. And right. that's kind of what we know of and remember these days. Yeah. Uh, the sirens were supposedly the daughters of the river god Achelous, and that lends some weight to the whole fishtail thing because he's a river god. Um, later, Roman mythology made them also extremely beautiful and seductive, but very, very deadly. Okay. Yeah. So in many, many languages today, the word siren is synonymous with mermaid. Spanish, French, Italian, Polish, Romanian, Portuguese, Filipino, they all use the word sirene, siren, sirena for mermaid. Right. Yeah. Um, a completely separate legend 
is the legend of, oh God, Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki. Either way, she's the sister of Alexander the Great, even if I can't say her name correctly. So basically, Alexander recovers a flask of water from the fountain of youth, fountain of immortality, and gives it to her, and then she's made immortal because she washes her hair with it. Not just her hair becomes immortal. Correct. Okay. Yeah. So then Alexander dies in 295 BCE, and Thessaloniki was grief-stricken and throws herself into the sea. Oh. As women yeah. do. Yeah. Um, but being immortal, she can't die. Hmm. So instead, she's transformed into a mermaid. And in this form, Thessalonu, Thessaloniki, oh my gosh, roams the Aegean Sea for centuries. And whenever a ship passes, she asks the sailors the same question. Is King Alexander alive? So, if the sailor answers correctly, which is to say incorrectly, and says he lives and reigns and conquers the world then Thessaloniki would allow the ship to continue on its journey unharmed. But any other answer, she got real angry, conjure a storm, or turn into a monster, depending on, again, which version of the legend you read, and, you know, send that ship to the bottom of the ocean. Of course. Next, I would like to talk about Pliny. Oh, the elder? Of course. Okay. Of course, of course, I'll talk about Pliny, because he has a chapter of one of his books that's called The Forms of the Tritons and Nereids, the forms of sea elephants. Oh. I'm not going to read the part two about sea elephants, but it's pretty funny. Okay. So, this is all a long quote from Pliny, okay? Okay. Quote, A deputation of persons from Olisipo that had been sent for the purpose brought word to the Emperor Tiberius that a triton had been both seen and heard in a certain cavern, blowing a conch shell, and of the form under which they are usually represented. Nor yet is the figure generally a attributed to the Nereids at all a fiction. Only in them, the portion of the body that resembles the human finger is still rough all over with scales. For one of these creatures was seen upon the same shores, and as it died, its plaintive murmurs were heard even by the inhabitants at a distance. Anyways, kind of scaly. Yeah. Yeah. The legatus, legatus of Gaul, too, wrote word to the late Emperor Augustus that a considerable number of Nereids had been found dead upon the seashore. I have, too, some distinguished informants of equestrian rank. You know, same rank as Pliny. It's very important, right? Okay. You can believe them. Who state that they themselves once saw in the ocean of Gades a seaman which bore in every part of his body a perfect resemblance to a human being, and that during the night he would climb up into ships upon which the side of the vessel where he seated himself would instantly sink downward. And if he remained there any considerable time, even go underwater. So you're saying he was very heavy. Yeah, I don't know what else that has to do with anything or where that came from. Or just what, mermaids are heavy. The logical... Ex- no, mermen. Mermen, right. Except for why is he a merman? They just said every part of his body a perfect resemblance to him. Why, why didn't they just think he was a real dude? Yeah, he's, he's more like a... You don't get why they assume he was a seaman. What if he's just a dude in a boat? Rockman? <laughs> Actually, later it comes up one other mythology that mermaids could be monstrously heavy. Oh. Uh, okay. Oddly enough. Anyways, I just wanted to read plenty. Of course. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the Middle East now. Let's do that. Um, we've already spoken about the early mermaids from the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We did. Um, in Iran, there was a Luristan fertility and water goddess that appeared on bronzes and other artifacts that dated back between 3000 and 1000 BCE that was often depicted with braided hair, breasts, and bisected fishtails. So that sounds pretty... Mermaidy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Arabian folklore also has several mermaid stories from 1001 Nights. Okay. I don't think I've heard any of those ones, but okay. So there is Yuladar the Seaborn and her son, King Bader Basim of Persia. It's a long title. I don't believe you. Um, unlike in other mythologies, they just look like humans. And the only difference being that they can live and breathe underwater. Okay. They can and do breed with land humans, and the children can still live underwater. There is also a story called Abdullah the Fisherman and Abdullah the Merman. Okay. And the protagonist, Abdullah the Fisherman, gains the ability to breathe underwater and discovers this underwater society that is portrayed as an inverted reflection of society on land. And this underwater society, again, like an inverted reflection, forgoes all the shallow human concerns like money and clothing and stuff. They live in a very socialist utopia paradise. Yeah. Um, In the, there's another one called The Adventures of Bulukaya. Um, Bulukaya is the protagonist in, on a quest for the herb of immortality. And so he starts exploring the seas where he encounters societies of mermaids. Okay. Um, On to Asia. There's a lot of different Asian uh, mermaid mythologies because, you know, inevitably if you live surrounded by water yeah you have a lot of water deity water spirit type of stories so so you're talking more of the oceana indonesia area not all of them korea is batted on three sides i, I mean water. you're you're right about the that philippines yeah. japan yeah. we'll start with indonesia okay so in indonesia javanese lore and also sudan sudanese sundanese sundanese they're okay. kind of similar mythologies anyways um tells us of Again, pronunciation is terrible here. Naya Roro Kadul, or the spirit queen of the Indian Ocean. Um, she's associated with fertility, reproduction, and prosperity. Uh, Naya Roro Kadul is sometimes depicted in the form of a mermaid, like that we would recognize, lower body fish or snake. Okay. Um, and sometimes she's just depicted as a very beautiful woman. So she is believed to be able to take the soul of anyone she wants. She's known to lure handsome young men into the sea from fishing boats or the beach. Um, and she's tied in with lots of the, the royals in the history of Javas. And she's considered the queen of the South Sea or the Indian Ocean. Um, so she's control in control of, you know, tsunamis, giant waves, those types of things. Makes sense. Um, and that probably came about because, again, when there's natural disasters and you don't know what's going on, you just kind of blame the gods, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also this belief that aqua green is a sacred color to her um, because she is that color. And if you wear that color, it will anger her. Oh, not that she'll protect you. Right. Mm. And they, and then, so the myth is that you'll become her soldier or her slave. She'll take you to be her slave if you wear that color. And scholars are suggesting that there's, you know, logical origin to this myth in that, it's the same color as the greenish water on that coast. Okay. And, you know, if you drown there and you're wearing that color, they'll never find you. Okay. Basically. So you clearly were taken camouflaged by a in, yeah. sea goddess okay. kind of thing. Um, in Thailand and Cambo- Cambodia, there's a lot of borrowed mythology from India. Uh, sure. Yeah, okay. So in Hinduism, Suvanamaka whose name means Golden Mermaid, okay. um, is a princess and a daughter of Ravana, who appears in the Cambodian and Thai version of the Ramayana, which is the Sanskrit 
epic poem. Very important. Epic. Sure. Um, so in the story, the prince and the hero Hanuman attempts to build a bridge of stone across the sea. Ooh. And Sivanamaka has been instructed to stop him from completing this bridge. Um, but, you know, they meet and fall in love instead. Of course. So yeah. instead of stopping him from building the bridge, she does end up helping him finish it. And now this mermaid's seen as the herald of good luck, and she's on charms and streamers and icons throughout all of kind of like Cambodia, Thailand, Laos area. Um, in the Philippines, there's different mermaid concepts and origins between different ethnic groups, which makes sense. Um, but in general, they're human above the waist. They have fish tails. They can be good or evil. They drown sailors uh, after luring them in with their songs, just, you know, like the yep. sirens. But other times, they rescue drowning sailors. Just, you know, have different whims at different times. Uh, exactly. Um, Chinese folklore has a decent amount of mermaid uh, mentions as well. They're described generally as capable, gentle, mild, beautiful, and a blessing of the sea. Um, there's Chinese literature dating as far back as 4 BCE that speaks of mermaids who wept tears that turned into pearls. Ooh. Um, there's a merfolk race called the Di people that are described as populating its own nation in the Shanghai Jing compilation of Chinese geography and mythology, which dates the 4th century BCE. Um, the Shanghai Jing also includes several types of human-headed fish, such as the Chiru, or Red Ru fish, um, as well as creatures with human-like qualities like the Renu, which is human fish. Okay. So there are thousands of years old stories, anecdotes about a Renu, like a human fish, allegedly seen by a ship carrying a Zhao Dou, an, a Korean emissary. Um, this Renu had an uncapped hairdo, a scarlet mane that extended to the back of her elbows. So Jha orders the crew to bring her on board, but she escapes. And Jha explains she's a Renu who is adept at fornicating with humans. Oh. This type of human dwelling in the sea. Yeah. Adept at. There, there is some, there's some of that too about mermaids just being captured solely for this purpose. Oh. Yeah. In Asian mythology. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's also an account of the Hair renu, which is sea human fish. Okay. Um, in the Taiping Guangxi compilation. Uh, the female of its kind had a head like a beautiful woman's with hair like a horse's tail and white skin like jade without scales, covered with multicolored downy hair and no legs. The male and female had sexual organs like humans so that widows and widowers would keep them in their ponds so hmm. the creatures could perform, you yeah. know. Acts. Acts, you know, when they were bidden to sure yeah so yeah like i said that that does pop up <laughs> um so the japanese equivalent of a mermaid is uh ningyo human fish again okay that, that's right human yeah. fish um consuming the flesh of a ningyo is said to bestow remarkably long life or even immortal life okay um a famous ningyo legend concerns the yao bakuni who is said to have eaten the flesh of a merfolk and attained miraculous longevity and lived for centuries so some consider ningyo a form of yokai which are a class of japanese mm -hmm. spirit like demon. and demon yeah um which have animal features usually but also a humanoid appearance yep um but that's uh not a consensus okay 
Um, the Ningyo were believed to be grotesque creatures in, in contrast to other mermaid mythologies. They aren't beautiful. Okay. Uh, it is a little bit different. Yeah. They, it was thought to bring warfare to a land if the body of a Ningyo was found washed up on shore. They were also believed to be a symbol of storms and bad luck, so sailors would avoid them. Sure. Yeah. Um, Korea. Like I said, Korea is bounded on three sides by the ocean, and they definitely have a lot of mermaid lore. Um, the traditional Korean word for a sea-dwelling being is an inyo, which translates to fish person. So today the term inyo is used to refer to both the fish-tailed mermaids like we would think of them, and also um, other aquatic humanoids with legs. It didn't used to be. There used to be a. They used to discern between the two. Okay. Now we don't. Um, so Korean mermaid folklore is more similar to China's in that sea maidens are good luck. They see her as kind of more of a goddess that would warn fishermen of storms and their impending doom. Um, so I don't know how to say this one. Sinjiki. I'll trust Maybe. you. Maybe Sinjiki is said to have been a mortal queen from Kyushu, Japan, who follows her lover Xiaobok on his travels, but dies while they're stranded on a Korean island called Jiomun Island. After her death, she becomes a mermaid, you know, throwing herself in the ocean, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and continues to wait for Xiaobok. And while she waits, which she'll wait forevermore, she warns fishermen of impending storms by singing and throwing rocks into the sea. Okay. Um, on Dongabake Island of Busan, there's a tale of Princess Huang from Naranda, which is a mythical undersea kingdom of mermaids. So Princess Huang Ok marries Yun He, king of Mungungnara, which is now Dongbaek Island. So this story is actually associated with the transmission of Buddhism from India to Korea. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, after Huang Ok transitions from the sea to land, she then starts to pine for her undersea homeland of Naranda. She's advised by a turtle companion to gaze at the full moon through an enchanted topaz given to her by her grandmother, where she sees her home country again and metamorphoses back into a mermaid and okay. goes home. Lucky for her. Yeah. Um, Eastern Europe also has mermaid mythology, which, yeah. you know, they're not really on the ocean. Well, I mean, some of those are kind of what is now in the kind of you know, Russian range, but... Well, what we're going to see is that... I mean, it's, we've already mentioned it a few times that what we're going to see is that mermaids can just be in any water. Okay. Fresh water, springs, rivers, lakes, whatever, right? Yeah. Um, so the word is rusalki. Well, that's like the plural. Rusalka would be the not plural. Um, is the word for mermaid or often translated as mermaid. Okay. Um, so they're water nymphs in Slavic mythology. So the original Rusalka from pagan Slavic mythology were considered benevolent spirits of fertility and agriculture. They came out of the water in the spring to transfer life-giving moisture to the fields and help nurture the crops. And then as often happens when pagan, pagan religions get overtaken by more patriarchal religions, yeah. now they're evil. Of course. So sometime around the 1800s is when we think perception started to shift and a Rusalka becomes an unquiet, dangerous, ghost-like creature. So, young women who either commit suicide by drowning hmm. due to, you know, an abusive marriage or unrequited love, or who were violently drowned against their will, um, especially after becoming pregnant with unwanted children, hmm. those are the ones that uh, live out their time on Earth as Rusalki. 
Sure. Okay. So they live on the bottom of rivers and lakes and haunt that waterway in which they were drowned. Uh, they can be seductive and dangerous and pull young men into the water. They Some myths say they have perpetually wet hair and they would die, even though they're already dead, so I'm confused, but whatever. Yeah, like, okay. die, die for real? I don't know. If their hair dries out. So they often carry a comb that allows them to conjure water while they're on land. Sure. They would peacefully die. They get to leave, you know, like, you know how ghosts, it's like, well, yeah, if you I've have my, yeah. then you get to leave. Anyways, so if their drowning was avenged, they okay. got to, you know, leave this earth. Um, they often come out of the water at night and sing in the trees and meadows. Hmm. So singing is another common, common yeah. thread here. Yeah, we have seen a number of instances of that. Yeah. Western Europe has uh, the melusine. Um, which is a feminine spirit that's found in lots of medieval European folklore. Um, she has a serpent or fish tail. She sometimes has wings. Oh, I don't think we've heard that from any other cultures, the wings part. Just the sirens. I was going to say, except for the sirens so that I then wonder, became... because this is Western Europe. Anyways, I wonder. Okay. Um, she also sometimes has two tails. And this is the mermaid most closely resembling the Starbucks logo. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Okay. Um, well, at least this is this is the kind of mermaid that spawned. You'll you'll see a little bit later. There's one that maybe we think inspired that logo the most. But um, so like Hungary, France, Germany, they all have different accounts of the Melusine. Melusine. I'll say Melusine. So the most famous legend describes her as a willful girl who tries to get revenge on her human father on behalf of her fairy mother, only to be punished by her mother with a tail. Okay. And then she does it again and gets punished with another tail. Uh, well, what if the tail was just stylish, two-tipped two tail I, from the start? I don't know. It could be, I guess. So in one story, um, a Melusine marries a human. But once a week, she transforms into a mermaid while taking her bath. And her husband had agreed to never enter her bathing chamber while she was bathing. But he breaks this agreement. Of course. And so he sees her in her mermaid form and she leaves him forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Melusine story exists in several local legends. Like the city of Luxembourg has a legend that Count Siegfried of the Ardennes, who founded Luxembourg in the year 963, married Melusina. And as in the other legends, she disappears after he breaks his promise and sees her taking a bath as a mermaid. Okay. Um, a separate legend has Melusina marrying Princess Raymondin of Poitou. I don't know where that is, but. <laughs> and they together form the royal house of Lusignan. And this is what they think is the origin of a mermaid's shown with a crown. So two tails and a crown is yeah. kind of what the Starbucks logo looks Con like. Yeah, kind of. Sure. It I, is. I, I can agree. I'm trying to picture it in my head and I haven't spent a lot of time at Starbucks, but I've seen a number of the logo or a number of the shops. So. I mean, yeah, the shops don't necessarily have the the mermaid on them, though. So mm. it's tough to picture, yeah. Just the cups. Um, so Paracelsus, who I would love and will do an episode on one day because he is so very interesting. So he wrote, well, he is an alchemist, scientist. Let's just, he's just, he's yeah. a pretty cool dude. He wrote a treatise called a book on nymphs, sylphs, pygmies, and salamanders, and on the other spirits. Wait, and salamanders. I yeah, feel like salamanders are pretty... No, he is super... 
Like in Frozen, the salamanders like the fire. Anyways, yes. salamanders are often associated with spirits, and I'm, I don't know why. And this is one of the reasons I need to, we need to look into someone that would write a book called A Book on Nymphs, Sylphs, Pygmies, and Salamanders and Other Spirits. Okay. Yeah, he wrote this book in 1566. So he spawned the idea in that book that the water elemental or water sprite could acquire an immortal soul through marriage with a human. Mm. And this is what led to the writings of two famous stories. Uh, De La Motte Folk's novella called Undine or Undina. Okay. And Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. Hmm. Which is not quite as PG as The Little Mermaid by Disney. You think I didn't talk about that? I don't know. I definitely, definitely (laughs) wrote about that later. Just, you know, use your patience and we'll get there. It's hard. It's hard. (laughs) So an Undine is a, so it's a dramatic legend about a freshwater spirit who is immortal, but without a soul. Okay. Um, in the legend, she wants to obtain a soul by marrying a human and bearing him a child. And in most of the stories, her husband is then unfaithful. She curses him and returns to the water. Hmm. That's kind of the general pattern here. Sure. So a later famous story of Undine says Undine is born a mermaid, but then is exchanged as a child for a human child by a river god. She marries a human, but her husband later rejects her. So Undine returns to the sea and her mermaid family, but she warns her husband he must remain faithful to her, even though she's not there anymore, or she will be honor-bound to kill him. Hmm. I'm yeah. sure you can guess what happens. Yeah. He marries a human woman and she kills him. Straightforward. Yeah. <laughs> um, dramatic folklore also includes creatures called nixies, which are shape-shifting water spirits that lure people into the water. Um, the males can assume lots of different shapes, including human, fish, and snake. Uh, and the females are pretty much just a female with a fishtail. Um, when they're in their human form, they can be recognized by what, the wet hem of their clothing, which is forever wet. Um, the Nixies are portrayed as malicious in some stories, but harmless and friendly in some other stories. Uh, and the Nixies also popular in Scandinavian mythology, which we'll talk about next. Because, you know, Germanic and Scandinavian weren't separated yeah, by much, right? Not by much. I mean, a couple little islands, really. So, in Scandinavian mythology, the mermaid-type creatures um, are known as have-fru. Have means sea, and fru means, you know, married woman or matron. Or, okay. You know, makes sense. Sea woman. So, an early description of the have-fru and her mate, the have-mand. Oh. You know. Like, mm. again, this makes sense. Mermaid and merman. Yeah. Um, it was given by a Dano-Norwegian bishop called Pontopidin. Pontopidin? Sure. They were considered the mating female and male of the creature, and they inhabited the North Sea, and they had a bunch of offspring, which were called the Marmela, Marmela, sea talkers. Sea talkers. Yes. Okay. Which highlights the fact that Scandinavian mermaids were often thought to be prophetic. Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay. So fishermen were said sometimes to take the Marmela home to give them insights into the future, but they didn't dare keep them for more than 24 hours. Mm, No, of course not. There's only, it's kind of like an or else thing. I didn't find what the or else was. But they didn't want to find out either. (laughs) Yes. So the beautiful half-fru of Scandinavia could be benevolent or malicious. There are lots of legends about merpeople abducting maidens. Not men. They didn't drown men, just maidens. Hmm. Threw them in the sea. (laughs) No, no. Abducted. Take them home to be their wives or something. Place them in the sea. Yeah. 
So it is said that the Hafru will avenge any harm done to it. There is a Norwegian anecdote of a Hafru who was lured near a ship and her hand was chopped off. Hmm. And then she caused a storm and tried to drown the crew. Yeah. Fair enough, I think. So Norwegians have this mythology about not wanting to see a Hafru as she means storms or bad weather is coming. Similarly, the Swedish tradition, if they see a mermaid, it's going to be a storm or a poor catch that day. Like she's going to chase off all the fish. Oh, I don't know. I don't know why they thought it was going to be a poor catch. Just bad. Okay, well, I'm going to make up a reason. You're going to add to the mythology. Yeah, my made up reason is she chases off all the fish. Sounds good. So according to the superstitions of Swedish fishermen, if a sailor sees a mermaid, he should not tell the rest of his crew, first of all. Oh. And he should strike flint against steel to light a spark to ward off that that omen. Because they don't like the, the spark or the fire. I don't know. You make I, I'm gonna make the, I'm going to make up and add to this. There is also a creature in Scandinavian lore called the Marger. That has a lot of Ys and Rs and Gs in it. I don't know if I said that right at all. Um, it's a yellow-haired woman who is a fish from the waist down, and she drags careless semen to the depths of the sea. But that word, which I don't want to say again, means something more like a mer-troll or like you know, sea ogress instead of like kind of more of a monster. So you kind of have to bring like a billy goat to like battle it if you're at sea. <laughs> or a sea goat? I guess if it's like a sea troll, then you need a sea goat, not a normal goat. Well, if you read Pliny's chapter on sea elephants, he does also mention sea rams. So just go talk to Pliny. There you go. Okay. He's already got it ready to go. Um, (laughs) So there's a version of the saga of St. Olaf, which is about Olaf II of Norway, by the way. And he's not a snowman. I don't know. Okay. I've never read it. Okay. Um, So... This king encounters a marger who is singing, was known to lull the voyagers to sleep and cause them to drown. And also the high pitched shrieks drove men insane. Those seem like completely opposite things. So I don't know. I don't know if there's like, you know, different kinds of noises that she made depending on, I don't know. But her physical appearance was described in that story as, as this, quote, she has a head like a horse with ears erect and distended nostrils. Big green eyes and fearful jaws. She has shoulders like a horse and hands in front. But behind she resembles a serpent. Hmm. Uh, Mergers. Margers, maybe. We're also said to be furry like a seal and gray colored, reminiscent of a selkie. Okay. So speaking of which, let's talk about Scotland. Let's do that. Scottish Isles, because... Um, the, skel- the Selkie has often been connected to mermaid mythology as well. Yeah. Um, even though they're not really fishy. Uh, no. But they are watery and humanoid. Yeah. So, um, Scotland and the Faroe Islands have legends and myths of Selkies. So they live in the oceans in the shape of a seal, but they can shed their seal skins and live as humans. Um, in one version of the mythology, Selkies are former humans who drowned themselves. Hmm. I hadn't heard that mythos for them before. So now there's uh, Gaelic Celtic words to say, and we all know how that goes. Oh, this is going to be fun. No. So in Gaelic stories, (laughs) there is something described as 
Maidinhara. Is it pronounced Sean? I don't. <laughs> I um I tried to look it up, um the exact term, and all I could find was a bunch of variations of a song on YouTube okay. by this name sung in Gaelic, and I was like couldn't even figure out which word was the word I was supposed to be trying to say. I'm so sorry. It was a valiant effort, I'm though. S- no, it wasn't. I'm so sorry, everybody. It's really hard to figure out how to pronounce things on Google. Um, anyway, that means maiden of the sea, okay? Okay. Sea maidens. I'm going to say that Perfect. from now on. So <laughs> in um, in these stories, um, there's, there's stories of selkies tempting people into the water. There's stories where they cast off their seal skins and marry humans and begin families. And that the selkies or maidens of the sea can be trapped on land if their human lovers slash husbands hide their seal skins from them. I've heard this specific story before. I feel like before. people just don't like each other when they get married in mythology. They do terrible things to each other once they get married. Or it's just what, you know, love demands, that you must trap your lover so that they're forced to love you back? Yeah, that's true love. Yeah. You know what they say? Something about setting a bird free if just don't ever set it free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Throw away the key. Um, so pretty much all the tales end when the Selkie returns to the ocean with or without their loved ones tragically. Yeah, they're always tragic endings. Of course. Um, Scottish mythology also includes the Kiask, and I found an actual pronunciation guide for that one because that is spelled C-E-A-S-G, Kiask. Oh, not like what you find in the middle of like malls. I literally thought that's what... You thought I was going to say kiosk? Like pretty close, yeah. Kiosk. Okay. I don't have a weird accent. No, not well, well. Not to me weird accent you're right all accents are weird to somebody yeah. um anyways that means made of the wave Ooh. um it has the form of a woman above the waist and the tail of a salmon below the waist yeah the kiosk can grant three wishes to anyone that captures them fancy yeah so ireland and scotland also have tales of the marrow which are humans above the waist and fish tail below the waist and they have webbed hands um, they're benevolent and they at times intermarry with humans and take human shapes while they're on land. While they're in the sea, they wear a red cap, which allows them to breathe underwater. And if you hide this cap from them, then they'll have to stay with you on land. Very good. Yeah. So female marrows are, have beautiful, long green hair. They kind of resemble our traditional mermaids. But the male marrow is considered kind of grotesque and cruel and more fish than man. I don't know why there's a difference there. Such I don't know, but it's... Sexual dimorphism. Yeah, just too bad for him, apparently. So, there is a an Irish tale. There is at least one. Um, it's either pronounced uh, Lee Bon or something else entirely, because, you know, Irish... Um, meaning beauty or paragon of women. And she is the mermaid of legendary Loch Ney. Loch Ney of Northern Ireland. So the lake was formed when her father, Yo-Hey. By the way, Yo-Hey is spelled E-O-C-H-A-I-D-H. Like I said, uh, thank goodness I found I found a pronunciation guide here. It might just be pronounced Sean. <laughs> <laughs> so Yohei is a son of the a king of Munster and one of the Tuatha de Danann. 
And I remember this term from when we talked about Celtic mythology. So, you know, check that episode out because I pronounce a lot of things wrong there too. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So anyways, he built their home around a new enchanted wellspring. And one day an attendant accidentally left this wellspring uncapped and the spring overflowed and floods the entire village. Too bad. Liban and her dog take refuge in a cave beneath this new lake and remain there for a year. They're the only survivors. After a year, Liban finally cries out to the goddess. They don't say what goddess. Anyway, it's just the goddess, you know, the general. This time, this is pagan Irish myth- or Celtic mythology. Right? Okay. okay like, like, this is back in the pagan days. Um, you know, she's envious of the free-wandering salmon, wishing she could be one of them and swim beyond the cave. Uh, so she's immediately transformed into half a salmon. Reminiscent of the kiosk, which is probably due to the importance of salmon in Celtic mythologies. Yeah, totally makes sense. Um, And her dog was turned into an otter. Oh, is that the first otter? Good question. Hmm. I don't know yes, the it is a good question. If you want to learn something, you could look that up. Yeah. Um, so for 300 years, they live in the lake and sea, and then Christianity comes to Ireland. And the end of the story is written by the Christians because they baptize the mermaid Ooh. and turn her into Saint. Muirgen, meaning sea birth. The Catholic Church did that part. Yeah. They did that part. They, you know, ended the story for her. 300 years later, they baptized her. Good for them. And then we're going to talk about Britain. Let's do that. So the earliest earliest depiction of a mermaid in England is found in a Norman chapel in Durham Castle, which is built around 1078 by Saxon stonemasons. Um, And it's apparently a pretty strange carving. With a mermaid being found alongside two leopards and some scenes of hunting. Two leopards? Uh-huh. I think of leopards and mermaids often at the same time. And I often think of leopards in Britain. At the same time. Yeah. So uh, historians believe that the mermaid symbolizes the temptation of the soul. Because women. Feminine wiles. Women. Okay, fine. Wicked, wicked wiles, as uh, Grumpy would say in Snow White. Yeah. Women. So mermaids appear in British folklore as unlucky omens. They both foretell disaster and provoke it. Uh, several variants of the ballad of Sir Patrick Spens depict a mermaid speaking to the doomed ships. Uh, in some versions, she tells them they'll never see land again. In others, she claims they're near shore, which they're wise enough to know she's lying to them. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, mermaids can also be a sign of approaching rough weather. And though they're usually described as beautiful, some were described as monstrous in size. This is what I was talking about before. It actually doesn't say that they were heavy, but it does say that they were like, you know, 2,000 feet long. So enough to sink a ship. Like over 600 meters long. Yeah. Pretty sure they're a little bigger than most ships. That, yes. Most. At least at the time. I feel like if you really thought they were that big, you would see more of them. Well, yeah. I suspect so. It's a lot bigger than the blue whale. I mean, the ocean is pretty deep, so. It's a lot bigger than the blue whale. Anyways, um, mermaids were also described as being able to swim up rivers to freshwater lakes. So in one story, the the Laird of Lorntai went to aid a woman he thought was drowning in a lake near his house, and his servant pulls him back and warns him, no, it's a mermaid. And the mermaid screams at them. She would have killed him if it weren't for that servant. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, mermaids could occasionally be considered as benevolent. For example, there's a few stories where they teach humans cures for certain diseases. Uh, okay. I don't know which ones, but... Um, mermaids from the Isle of Man, known as Ben Vare, are were considered more favorable towards humans. Um, so there's various accounts of them giving assistance or gifts. Uh, one story 
talks about a fisherman who carried a stranded mermaid back to the sea and was rewarded with the location of treasure. Another tells the tale of a baby mermaid who stole a doll from a human girl. And the mother, you know, of course, scolds her and sends her back with the doll and a gift of a pearl necklace. Um, another story tells of a fishing family that made regular gifts of apples to a mermaid and then they were prosperous from then on. Good for all those ones. Yeah. yeah. So in Brazil, we've got folklore about Iara, who's a mermaid or a water nymph or a siren, depending. Okay. Um, it means something like Lady of the Lake or Water Queen, something like that. Uh, so according to legend, she's a mortal, freshwater nymph. She appears as a beautiful young woman with green hair and light skin. She sits on a rock by the river and combs her hair or dozes under the sun. And when she feels a man around, she'll sing to him to lure him in to live out his life with her underwater. So she's blamed for, you know, men's yeah. disappearance uh, in near the Amazon. Okay. Uh, the Caribbean, they have tales of Aikaya and La Serena, who are both mermaids. Um, but in general, just kind of wrap this up with like, what does a mermaid generally symbolize? Sure. Um, because it, it was pretty changeable. There is some life and fertility, especially earlier on. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, later on, she's going to embody more destructive natures of storms and such as an explanation for a lot of the malfortune at sea. Yeah. Um, so we do know the iconography associated with mermaids, especially the siren type mermaids, kind of clashes with the femme fatale stereotype. Uh, most of the early Greek artwork in which sirens appear portray them as bearded males. Oh. From the time. Sometimes they're armed. Sometimes they're not. Uh, only later they're consistently female. Okay. Depicted as female. So interestingly, in a 1925 paper, an archaeologist said Atragatis, our original mermaid, was sexless. And frequently assigned androgynous qualities. Okay. So, you know, there's all these theories about the, like, liminality of water. You know, the across, the the border, like, the, all the, all this kind of symbolism. Yeah. Um, is what leads to this kind of non-binary image of, of mermaids. That it comes up again and again, especially earlier on. Like, just fluidity in, in general. Fluidity, gender fluidity especially. But, yeah. like, just, like... You know, there's, like, this blending of a feminine ocean and a masculine sailing culture. Okay. Um, because, you know, mariner culture is a deeply male space. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, seas and ships were feminine, right? Feminine names on a ship. Yeah. Um, but then yet, the crew was all male, or we thought so. And simply having a woman on board a ship is bad luck. We've heard that story, right? Many times, yeah. Um, but despite, you know, despite the all-male stereotypes, uh, we've been learning a lot, especially lately, that the sea was kind of an escape for people that we recognize maybe as non-binary, transgender, or even gay or lesbian. So, for example, there is a female pirate couple, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. And in the early 18th century, they dressed as men and sailed the seas with Calico Jack. Oh, in the Caribbean. Um, Most of their crewmates, we believe, knew that they were women. And today we think that that probably wasn't uncommon. Um, And so mermaids have kind of in the past been and now today are again being adopted as kind of a symbol of gender nonconformity. I didn't know that. Cool. Um, So I also do want to mention mermaid sightings. (laughs) let's do that so in mariner customs especially in like british 
Mariner custom, um, when a mermaid was spotted, she would be watched really intently because if she turns away from the ship, it's good fortune. Uh, if she follows the ship, then it's disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a mermaid picks up a fish and throws it away from the ship, it meant none of the cruise ship would be killed on that voyage. But if a mermaid is throwing fish at your ship, it then would kill them. some of your crew is doomed. At okay. least some of it. Not by the fish itself, by no, just future events. it's just events. an omen. Okay. Um, so for several centuries, mermaids were seen constantly, especially in the Atlantic Ocean. Christopher Columbus reported seeing three mermaids, and he said they were, quote, not as beautiful as they are represented. <laughs> um, hmm. The famous English pirate Blackbeard, Edward Teach, reported seeing mermaids, as did Captain John Smith. Okay. So here's an account by Samuel Purchase, a seaman who accompanied Henry Hudson on his second voyage to the New World. He wrote in his diary on 15th May 1608 that one sailor had spotted a mermaid. She was close to the ship and looked earnestly at the men. So the sailor called to his companions, but only one other arrived before she disappears below the waves. She was a woman from the navel upwards. Her breasts were exposed and her skin was very white. Her hair was long and black. Her tail, which turned upward as she descended, was speckled like that of a mackerel. Okay. So what's up with that is the question. What is up with that? Like, was everyone just crazy? Maybe. Probably. They're all suffering from sea diseases. Yeah. Scurvy. Who knows? Uh-huh. Um, were they hallucinations of sailors desperate for female companionship? Like, it's kind of contradictory because there's all those stories of men taking to the sea because they were spurned by women or whatever, yeah. right? Um, so I'm sure you've heard, what if they were manatees? I have heard that one before, yeah. Yeah, because manatees sure look like beautiful women, right? Totally. Um, <laughs> so manatees and dugongs, by the way, FYI, belong to an order. Uh, oh, I didn't look this up. This is off of memory going like 10 years back. But Serenia, I think it's called. Hmm. So, you know, sirens. Then you got your mermaids. There, there you go. John M. McCauley has argued some of the sightings might have just been like native kayakers from like indigenous from, from Greenland or some areas. And they just like were like, oh, my God, it's a mermaid. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's also some tricks of light and shadow on the waves in different weather of that course. might have contributed to this. But, um, okay. Little Mermaid. I said we we're going to get there. You did say it. We're on The Little Mermaid. Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Little Mermaid in 1837 in Copenhagen, Denmark. Okay? And, as you said, his version and Disney's version are a little different. A little bit. So, in his story, the mermaid princess allows the sea witch to cut out her tongue. Yep. Instead of just, you know, losing her voice temporarily. When she gets her legs, every time she walks, her pain is compared to walking on knives or swords. Yeah. It's really painful to walk on legs, apparently. Um, so in the Disney tale, you know, in the end, she marries the prince. And in Hans Christian Andersen's story, she fails to undo the curse. The prince marries someone else. And she throws herself into the water to commit suicide. That's just like yeah. what women do, apparently. She becomes floatsam. She lives with the spirits of the air, yeah. is how it ends. Um, another FYI, fun fact. Today, most scholars agree that Hans Christian Andersen wrote the story after Edvard Collin rejected his affections because he was bisexual. Oh, And he I didn't know was that. in love with him at the time. Yeah. Okay. So I thought that was interesting. And uh, here's another random interesting mermaid story. Okay. Mary, Queen of Scots. You're thinking... She was a mermaid? You're... <laughs> yes. The end. Okay. Sorry. I was not um, aware of this specific piece of history. Um, you're probably wondering what she has to do with mermaids right now. Yeah. Um, so 
The symbol of the mermaid also appears in a series of illustrations of Mary, Queen of Scots, who, if you don't know, was Elizabeth I's cousin and rival to the throne. Yeah. So the sketches were clearly made with some ill intention. Hmm. Uh, if you're a fan of Mary's. <laughs> okay. I guess if you're not, then good sketches. <laughs> um, so following the, the murder of Mary's first husband, uh, Henry Stuart, also called Lord Darnley, on... 10th February 1567. There's posters just started showing up around Edinburgh that they didn't know who they came, where they came from, or it doesn't say in history where they came from. And they kind of allude to Mary as a mermaid and her future third husband. Oh, wait. Was Henry Stewart her second husband? This I don't know. I'm so, so. sorry. One of her husbands gets murdered. Okay. Not by her, probably. We're thinking not by her. Okay. But other people wanted people to think it was sure her, that's or good she motivation was in on it yeah so her next husband james hepburn the fourth earl of bothwell was depicted as a hare and she was depicted as a mermaid in these posters um so the mermaid represented you know temptation prostitution you know all those feminine wicked wiles that i have yeah. mentioned um and the hare symbolizes a lustful animal you know well i mean babies. it yeah yeah so it was kind of a propaganda that was promoting Elizabeth as a virtuous virgin queen and implicating Mary in the death of, oh, I wrote right here, her second husband. There you go. Henry Stuart, Lord Tynley was her second husband. Good sleuthing. And portraying her as a prostitute. It was, mm. it was nice. Um, just to end this episode off, I thought I'd mention uh, a famous mermaid hoax, which you're probably aware of. Okay. Uh, the Fiji mermaid. Yeah. Exhibited in London in 1822 and later in America by P.T. Barnum in 1842. Yeah. And it was advertised to sideshow viewers as a mummified mermaid. Yeah. So in reality, it was composed of the torso and head of a juvenile monkey sewn onto the back half of a fish. And turns out that's not odd for the time period. Really? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay. So where did this come from? It's thought that American sea captain Samuel Barrett Edes bought the mermaid from Japanese sailors in 1822 for $6,000, which is a lot back Wow, then. that is yeah. a lot, yeah. Other accounts say captain of an American whaler ship bought it for $5,000 in Dutch Indonesia. So either way, it's believed to have been manufactured in Japan, but there is a thriving commercial mermaid manufacturing industry in Japan, and especially in the Kyushu region, of Japan, also in China and the Malay archipelago, would all do this. So to them, it was kind of a joke, like sure. to make money too. Like that these stupid, these stupid people look like they'll yeah. believe kind of, kind of joke. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, and so, so specifically, this Fijian, Fijian mermaid, this one, they think was a blue-faced monkey and a salmon put together. Yeah, that'd be a pretty big salmon. But, okay. <laughs> um, um, well, it was, it was, uh, sa- no, not average size salmon. It was okay. a mummified mermaid, remember? Yeah, it was shriveled okay, up sure. and it was, okay, it was sure. pretty small. Like, okay. Anyways, um, so apparently, yeah, there's a thriving industry in these areas out of putting monkey and fish parts together and then importing, sending those to Europe through Dutch traders since the mid 16th centuries. And, and they think that they started manufacturing them even earlier than that, but it became really like a thriving thing in, in that time frame to okay. trick the dumb. Europeans into yeah. believing this story. Okay. Why not? Yeah. So, you know, I thought that was a good ending to the to the mermaid mythology um, uh, story here. And 
yeah, I just want to end off by saying how surprised I was with how many different mythologies. I feel like every time I do one of these episodes, I'm like, wow, so yeah, many so different. Common. It's so common. And yeah. even though I think I know a lot about mythology, I, you know, that's much. Yeah. So much to know and so much to pronounce wrong. <laughs> just so much of it. That's true. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you everyone again for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. Uh, once again, I'm Melissa. And uh, I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm.